Hope you guys are having a good morning, good morning today. You know, it's funny, um, 10 years ago, a day like today would kind of leave me kind of meh because of the cloudiness, I, I hated that weather. But you know, actually today I woke up and I saw it and I, I felt pretty good. I was like, you know what, today's a good day, All right? I think your pastor is, uh, is emotionally growing, guys. You know, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that, all right? Ah. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to First Peter. We are in a series called A Call to Holiness in a Hostile World. And what that means is recognizing that we are living in an in, in, in uh, environment, a culture, a narrative that is hostile to the narrative of what God calls his people to live as. And in this hostility of this narrative, how are you to live? Do you blend in? Do you... Uh, given? Do you submit? Do you succumb into the cultural talks? Or do you stand up and live a life that is holy before God? Right? And what what we hope for you guys to recognize is this. You know, there's, there's one thing about being close to God, being near to God, Engaging with God, knowing his heart, knowing your relationship, getting deeper in that. But that needs to translate into how now you live to the world around you. How now you are to express your life to the world around you. And this series was developed and and, and, uh, prayed through with the hope of getting you guys to think about how do I live a holy life in the midst of hostility around me? Emotional hostility, mental hostility, spiritual hostility, even physical hostility. How do I maintain a life that is distinct, a life that is unique, a life that is sacred, a life that is set apart for Jesus Christ? And last week I shared with you, on an individual level, the way you begin this journey of living holy in a hostile world is that you need to be able to feed yourself something that is going to be nutritious for you. Because there are things that you take in every day that is not nutritious for you, not good for your mind, your heart, your body, your spirit. And what results from that is a sick life, sick spirit, sick mind, sick brokenness in the heart. We see this all the time. Anxiety is up, loneliness is up, depression is up, abuse is up, all of these things are up. And maybe the the reason why is because day in and day out, we feed ourselves, what Peter says, with malice with envy, with deceit, with slander, with hypocrisy. Day in and day out, we we, we swipe up at our news feeds, watching these people, envious of them, watching them slander others, watching the malice and the contempt and the hypocrisy build up. And every day we take this in, moment by moment. So garbage in ultimately results in garbage out. No wonder we find ourselves unhealthy. And what Peter is saying to live holy in a hostile world, what you need to take in is God's word. What you need to begin to develop for your palate is God's word. And as you begin to recognize how nutritious this word is, you will recognize how actually broken and messed up your heart has been. Today, though, I want to take it one step further. So how do we live in holiness in the hostile world to the environments around us, to our social areas, 
to our work, to our family, to our schools, to our church, to our, our country? How are we to live holy lives in the midst of this hostility that we face? And Peter is going to share that with us and give us some wisdom behind this. And again, I hope that this series is practical because I try to make it as practical. Most of the time when I preach, I preach in the theological and I let you guys kind of figure out your own application. So this time I try to give you guys as much application as possible and you guys should just do it. That's why just really much my, 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 my hope, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Let's start there. 13 to 14. How are we to live holy in a hostile world? There's three things that we're going to learn um, in this passage we're going to read. We're going to learn what we are called to do, right? What are we supposed to do to live holiness in a hostile world in our social spheres? How to do it and the power to carry out. We're going to learn what we are called to do, how we are called to do it, and the power to carry it out, okay? Three things. So what are we called to do? How do we live holy in a hostile world? Look at verse 13 and 14, chapter 2. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. All right. It's going to be, I'm not going to lie to you, it might be a little bit uh, controversial, this uh, message. Okay. I mean, I'm just trying to preach through this. I, I didn't even pick the series, by the way. I hope you guys know that, right? Uh, it's, it's your two, uh, two uh, my, our two pastors pricked it and they uh, prayed through it. Um, but I think it's kind of godly. It's kind of timely in this nature. You know, we have our, uh, our um, elections coming up, all these things coming up. And, we, you know, the, the, the social media sphere is starting to get, you know, get a little riled up a little bit here. It's going to get even more intense. And the question begins to ask is, how do we live holy in a hostile world? And Peter begins by saying what? Something that you guys were like, what? He says, Submit. To every institution among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who sent by him. Submit to every authority. I know in the Western sphere, you guys are thinking, that's crazy, Tony. How can you tell me to submit to a corrupt government? How can you tell me to submit to an unjust institution? How can you tell me to submit to these things? Let me tell you the context of Peter, and I'll tell you how even crazier what Peter just said feels like, okay? Because if you think it's crazy now, listen to what Peter, uh, the context in which Peter wrote this in, and then you'll realize how crazy it really is. You know what the context of Peter was, First Peter? There were all these Christians scattered out through the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, an empire that worships its emperor like a god. From the day you were born, you have been indoctrinated to worship your emperor as God. Right? There is no other. And in this atmosphere, this context, all these Christians scattered around. What was happening? They were living their lives seeking to be holy, sacred, distinct, unique from their culture around them. And because they were in the front to the emperor's laws, decrees, and words, they began, they began to become the persecuted group, the, minor, the minority group that was persecuted among the empire. Now, how were they persecuted? You guys ready? Check this out. Nero in 64 AD, this is, these were written accounts of what he did to Christians in those days. He would take Christians and he would tie all their limbs, he tie our limbs to uh, horses, all four limbs, and then he would let all four horses run, ripping the, 
the Christians apart, us Christians apart. During his dinner parties, government-sponsored, he would hang us on a stick, pour resin on us and gasoline, and light us on fire to provide light for the party. He would throw us into the gladiatorial coliseum to be eaten by the wild animals as sport so that the people around him would cheer. If you think, right, and if you think in the midst of that, how crazy we are in now, imagine that. Imagine a believer living like that. The closest context we have here in, America, in, 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 our, in our time here will be Christians growing up in Sharia law or Muslim countries where they will be persecuted, killed on the spot. The closest we have here in this world is Christians who are underground churches in China who are secretly worshiping God because if they were to get caught, they'd be thrown in jail, their families would be separated or concentration camps. That's the closest we got. In America, we don't even get anything close to that. That was the context that Peter wrote in. And in that context, nonetheless, amidst of the unjust government, the unjust uh, institution, the ungodly emperor, what did Peter tell them to do? To submit. Submit to every authority instituted among men. Perspective, isn't it? Here we are, we're complaining about high gas prices. High gas prices or actually being gas for a party, right? Here we are complaining about 15% increase in meat. It actually is very sad, okay? 15% increase in meat production, right? Or being meat, right? I mean, perspective. Nonetheless, Peter tells the scattered believers, scattered Christians, this is how you're going to live holy in a hostile world against you. What you, to, what you were called to do is submit to the institution created by men. For us, it looks something like this. We are called to respect the authority and the institutions that we have. Children should respect their mom and their dad. Right? That's an institution. Submit to that. Citizens should have modicum of respect for their political leaders and those who have been given a task to defend and protect your rights and privileges. In the church, Christians should honor pastors, elders, and those in the overseer watching over your, your spirit. This means that even at work, you're an employee, you should have some respect for your employer. If you're in a nation that's protected by military, you should have some degree of honor, respect, and appreciation for those who secure your freedom and your rights. Peter is calling the Christians to submit to these institutions. I know, I know you guys are asking, but why? But why, what, and why and what? What about, what about un, injustice? Tell me, what are we supposed to do with that? What about, what about corruption? What are we supposed to do with that? What about ungodliness? What are we supposed to do? We just submit, just bend over? Is that what Christians are, just passive, submissive? The answer is no. I'm going to let you, I'm going to, in the how part, I'm going to share that with you. But in this point right here, I want you to get it through your mind that the way in which our God, our King, our Lord, 
chose to establish his kingdom is through sacrifice, through service, and through surrender. He didn't want to build a kingdom that was going to force outward change but never have any change within the inside. God came to build a kingdom that was more than just the outward appearance but the inward change of the heart of men and women. Why do we submit that in the process of learning to submit, learning to lay down, learning to serve, learning to sacrifice, amongst, amidst hostility, you begin to become something so unique, so different than anything the world's ever want. And when they see it, there's a taste for it. There's a longing for it. You're like a dream that they wish they would, that they've been yearning for, but they don't know how to get it. And yet here you are with every resource possible. What it requires is this, an absolute surrender first and foremost to your God, your king. And in that surrender, you now live this life submitting to those around you. I know you're asking, so how am I supposed to submit then? What does that look like? Right? What does that look like? Okay, get it, I get it, submit. Build on this, you know, explore this because I don't like it already. Right? What privileged people we are, right? Can you imagine Christians back then looking at us today? We are, we are the most blessed. They, they wouldn't be able to even understand. Like, wow, that's what you guys all got? My Lord, I just buried my wife who was a um, Kindle fire to Nero's insanity. I just buried my kid's bones who was meat to the tigers in the Colosseum. And we complain about how difficult we have it here. He calls us to submit. Nonetheless, Peter calls us to submit to this place. How are we to do that? Look at verse 15, okay? I'm going to lay down seven commands. I know there's a lot. It's hanging in there, okay? Seven practical ways, seven practical things that Peter says, this is how you are to submit in this way. So it's not bend over backwards here, guys, okay? There is, there is some beauty behind this. There is some uh, texture behind this. There is some, there's some uh, boundaries behind this. Submitting is not this idea, just, just do whatever you want to me. Submitting requires some sort of action behind it. And this is the actions we are to take. Verse 15, it says this. For it is God's will that by doing good, for it is God's will amidst you being burned alive, amidst you being eaten, amidst you being persecuted, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. The first thing is this, do good to silence the foolish. Do good. How do I submit you do good to silence the foolish? Question, are there still ignorant and foolish people out there? Yes. What is their main characteristic? They are very loud, right? They're either loud physically or they're loud on social media, right? They're loud constantly. Ignorant and foolish people tend to be loud. And what happens when you begin to fight with them? Do they get quieter? No, they get even louder. They just make you more foolish and ignorant as you begin to be argumentative, argumentative, argumentative with them. 
Do good, he says, to silence the foolish. And what Peter is saying is this, have a character, have a conduct where you can silence those who are yelling the loudest in the public sphere. They're yelling about injustice. Live and do justice. They're yelling about homeless issues. Live and actually care for the homeless. They're yelling about this. They're yelling about that. They're going all, they're talking, but no one's doing anything. They're complaining, but no one's building. They want to destroy everything, but no one wants to build anything. And Peter says this, amidst this hostility, among all this ignorant talk, do not fight back with more crazy talk. Fight back, live your life in such a way where you are doing good, where it is seen in your life. They don't need to talk to you to know what you are doing. Secondly, it says this, 16, 16a, live as free men and women, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God on God's slave or God's servant, not yet. Okay, 16a. What we tend to do is this. When things happen, when things happen, we use them as a cover fire or cover up for evil. You know what that means? That means this. A happened, therefore I can do B. You create an injustice against me, therefore I will create an injustice against you. You did this against me, therefore I will burn down your whole entire livelihood. You, you mess with me in this way, therefore I will do all this to you. Peter is saying, you are free as believers. You are free as believers, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. I, I, I've been watching Ring of Power, Lord of the Rings, Ring of Power. I know some people, some people are like, I didn't read the books. I don't know whether it's good or bad, but to me, I'm watching this. It's pretty good, right? And there's certain lines. There's certain lines by Galadriel, uh, the elf. One line last night when I was, two nights ago when I was watching it, you know, she, um, she talked about how she went to war against the orcs, right? And the guy who, uh, who's lost his whole family and his, his village because of it, he was like rejoicing, yeah, kill those orcs. Right? And then she says, do not rejoice in that. Do not rejoice using uh, over, over these deeds. He says, why not? Because what they do, when you rejoice over evil that is done to try to stop, when you rejoice over an act that in and of itself is not good to stop evil, when you begin to rejoice in those acts, you plant the seed of evil in your own heart. Right? You may say, like, woohoo, look at you taking down the man. They deserve it. When you rejoice in that, when you rejoice in the repercussion of anger or reciprocity of, 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 a, of, of a wrong being done, when you rejoice in that, all you're doing is you're planting an evil seed that given time can grow into something even uglier. Even though, at the, even though in the front end, it looks like it's the right thing to do. Even if it's the right thing to do, you do not rejoice in the killing of it, in the murder, in the destruction. Live free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Sorry, I had to use an illustration because the two guys were like, you need illustrations, it's too bland, okay? So that's my best illustration I got for that one. Number, 
16b. Okay. Okay. Practical, yes? All right, so I'm keep going. 16b. Live as servants of God. Use your energy to serve God. So how am I to submit? What is this barrier? What is this boundaries in which I am to call to submit to the institution among men? Peter says, you got to, one, do, uh, do the work of, uh, what is it? do the work of Silencing the fools, uh, foolish talk of ignorant people. Live free, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up. And here's the third thing, serve God. In the middle of life, people want to serve their own interests. We're self-centered. We're selfish by nature. Everyone wants to pull, every little situation that comes up, everyone wants to pull left or they want to pull right. Or they just want to, like, I don't care anymore, right? Either you're going to go left, right, or I don't care. Everyone wants to serve their own interests. That's natural. What Peter is saying, no, serve God. Serve God. When the situation comes up, do I, do, I, do I lean left on this situation? Do I lean right on this situation? Because every situation comes up. You know how, how it is. It's being politicized everywhere. Every which way. Everything that comes up gets politicized. Left, right. And yet Peter is saying, it's not left or right. Isn't it in the center? You're to pull upwards. You're to pull upwards. You begin to ask the question, okay, God, what do you think about this? Not what they think, not what they think, not what I think. What do you think about this? What do you want me to do? What's your agenda? How can I be a part of your mission? What is your plan? How do I fit into this work? Don't lose the mission, don't lose the message, don't lose the plan. See, the problem with sometimes as believers is that we forget that we are part of God's narrative, God's kingdom place, and we try to step, ourselves, step outside of it to live for our own self, our own interests, our own self-worth, our own self-centeredness, our own self-wealth. Um, oh, and what happens? We forget that God's story is his story. The beginning and the end is all controlled by him. The question you need to ask is, where do I fit into the story? How does this situation get folded into God's story? So when an issue comes up, your job is not to serve whichever place ideology, um, ide, ideologically, ideology, right? I can't talk today, right? Your job is not to serve a certain ideology. Your job is to pull upward and ask the question, what do you think, God? What is your agenda? What is your mission? What is your plan? Tell me, because that's what I want to know. We're called to serve God as we submit in this world. You guys follow? Serve God. Next one. Show proper respect to everyone. Honor everyone. Honor everyone, he says in 17, verse 17. Honor everyone. Show respect for everyone. What about the people who do wrong? What about those we don't like? What about those we find offensive or not kind? What about the agitators and the instigators? What about those guys? Honor everyone? Respect everyone? Okay, honor doesn't mean, listen guys, honor does not mean you agree with them. Right? Those of you guys who are married, you understand this, right? Honor does not mean you agree with them. You, you're married. You know this. 
You need to honor your spouse. Don't always, it does not mean you always have to agree with your spouse. It means that if you're going to have a relationship, there's going to be a need for mutual respect rather than, hey, it's this way or the highway. It's my way or get out of here. It's my way or we no longer have any type of relationship anymore. It means that in the middle of disagreement, you honor the relationship by treating them in an honorable way. Because our job as believers, remember, the part of the plan, the mission is not to win an argument. The mission is to what? It's to win the person. God's kingdom is not built by how much arguments we win. God's kingdom is built one soul, one life at a time. So when you are honoring everyone, when you're showing proper respect to everyone, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. But for the sake of the relationship, so I don't agree with you, but I will bend over backwards in order to maintain and build on this relationship. If you don't honor the person, guess what? You might win the argument. You might come off high and mighty because, you know, logically you proved them wrong or, you know, you got more stats than they did. and You cut them down. You may win the argument, but you did not win the person. And as a Christian in a hostile world, to live holy, winning an argument is not holiness. You are called to win the soul. By the way you live, the way you respect, the way you love. One more, another one. In addition, love the brotherhood of believers. Love the brotherhood. This is the Christian priority. We are called to do good for all, but especially for those in the household of faith. We're called to do good. You're meant to do good for everyone. But in the household of faith, you have your priority to do this. You want to, you want to be generous, meet people's needs, and bless? Start where? Start with the household of faith. The brother and the sister next to you. Our first responsibility is to our home, our wives, our children, mom and dad, then our church home, then to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ scattered throughout the world. And when we understand this. What this does is that it realigns our priority. We're no longer trying to figure out which, uh, which, which party, which agenda, which ideology, which state I'm going to come. Because let me tell you something. Kingdoms come and go. Kings will rise. Kings will fall. But the kingdom of God and the word of God endures forever. And so what we are called to do is when we have the priority of loving the brotherhood, of believers, the sisters of believers, what we're called, it it, it helps us to focus, how am I loving the brother and sister next to me? How am I loving my family? My mom, my dad, am I loving them? My wife, my children, am I serving them? The people next to me here in this place, am I, I, when they meet me, when when I'm with them, do they feel like I'm there for them, that I will be there for them, that they can count on me? Those persecuted around the world, do they know that I'm praying for them? You realign your focus when you serve and love the brotherhood. Here's the thing right here. Fear God. Next one. Fear God. In addition, fear God. Fear God. You know what this means? It means we don't fear men. We don't fear the laws made by men. We don't fear their the cultural norms created by men. We don't fear the narrative 
created by men. We fear what God says. Because above every authority is God. All authority ultimately comes from God. As Christians, we believe what? We believe there is a universal law giver, God, and that there are universal laws binding over all people. There are laws, there's, there's, a, there's a truth and there's a narrative, there's a reality that is given to all people because there is a holy God who sets those things. And the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you can do is that you hear people crying for justice, crying for rights, crying for these things. They cry out for those things, but they do not acknowledge the one who gave them the rights for that. How, how do you appeal to a universal law and not appeal to universal law giver? Where do you get your right to even complain about? Where do you get your right to even make an offensive, to, to make an offensive statement about certain things? So it's my right. This is how it's supposed to be done. This is who I am. You're supposed to do this for me. This is how, this is how it's supposed to work. Supposed to requires what? Someone told you that you're supposed to do it. So how do you claim universal law, universal rights, without claiming the universal law giver? The first thing we do as believers is what? We fear God. We know exactly why we do what we do. We know exactly why we fight for the life of an unborn child. I fear God, not man, not your personal preference. I fear my God. This is why we fight for justice for those who are in the minority groups who cannot have a voice of their own. Why? Because I fear God. They were made in the image of God. Therefore, this person has worth and value. I fear God, not man. And when there is injustice being done, when there is injustice being done, rather than denying all the authority and just say, let's just scrap it, dismantle it, start over. We're supposed to appeal to the higher authority to correct what's being done that's wrong. All right? I, I, I tell this in family ministry a lot. When, when your spouse, either one of your spouses is doing something unjust, ungodly, don't try to fight each other off. Right? Don't just say, you're just bad husbands. This is how all wives are crazy, right? But you can't, you can't just, just blanket statement those things. What do you do? You appeal to the higher authority to correct the erroneous behavior, to correct the wrong authority that's being done. So let's say, for example, someone comes in and says, you know, my husband is such a bad father. He raises his voice, he's intimidating, the kids are scared of him, he's not generous, he's just not good. I wouldn't say, you're right, dismantle the fatherhood, right? That's how all dads must be. I would do what? I would appeal to my God. I said, this is how our God treats his children. His children. With sacrifice, with patience, with service. I would appeal to my God to fix this issue. You guys get me? Because why? Because I fear God. It is God's voice that is first and central to our hearts, not our own, not our narrative, not our culture. It is God's voice first and foremost, not our workplace, not our money. 
It is God's voice that we look to first. You appeal to the higher authority to correct the erroneous authority. That's what it means to fear God. That's what it means to fear God. You, the fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. You know what wisdom is? Right? It's the fear of God. And the reason that works is this. When something comes on and you begin to try to like use your own intellect, your own experience, your, 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 um, the stories that have been told around you, and you try to use that to kind of fix this problem. And all the while, God is saying, mm, no, I know that that's how you think it's going to work. I know at the best intention, you're trying to do good. At the best intention, I get it, you're trying to do good. But I'm, I'm the one who made it. I'm the one who made this. I know exactly what makes it flourish. So listen to me and not that. Listen to me when I tell you what the Institute of Marriage really looks like. Yes, there are bad marriages out there. Yes, there are broken marriages out there. Yes, there are bad fathers, bad mothers. Rather than taking our own wisdom and say, well, we got to fix it this way. We got to do that. We got to change this, make this. Rather than going out about our own cultural narrative, I know at best what we're trying to do is find the wisdom that's from God. We're, we're trying to reach to God, but we don't, we don't acknowledge it. We don't even know what the, that we're looking for it, and we're doing all these things, and we're missing the mark halfway all over the place. And here all the while God is saying, listen to my word, listen to my voice. I made it. I made it. I know what makes it flourish, so fear me. Do it my way. You may not be liked for a while. You may suffer for it. But would you trust me and fear me first? That's what it means to submit, guys. How do we stay holy in a hostile world? Peter says, you are called to submit, to have a posture of submission. But what does that posture look like? That posture, that main submission posture, it means that you do good instead of just yapping all the time. That you live free. You don't repay evil for evil. You serve your God. You honor the people around you. You love the brotherhood. You fear God. And here's the last one you guys might not, uh, second to last one you guys might not like. It says this, honor the king. Honor the king. The emperor was a man that wanted to be worshipped like a god. He had complete power. There's no rule of law. Might is right. Therefore, worship me. That was the king that the Christians then had to deal with. That was the emperor. And what does Peter say? Did Peter say, rise up, kill him? Nope. Did Peter say, hey, destroy the institute? Nope. Peter said, do what? Honor the king. Now, let me tell you something. I said, honor the king. I didn't tell you worship the king. I didn't say you have to vote for the king. I didn't tell you you have to agree with the king. Right? You were called to do what? Honor the king. What does that mean? That means this. Even if you disagree and disrespect someone's authority, express that in a respectful way. Even if you disagree with them and you do not like what they are doing, you are called to express that in a respectful way. If you don't honor what they're doing, honor the fact that there's still one thing about them. They are made in the image of God. They are made in the image of God. Here is the last part of this. 
Verse 18 and 20. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Peter is using the illustration of a servant to his master as a way of understanding that this is your response, okay? This is how you are to respond. That when you do good, when you seek to do good, when you seek to be honorable, when you seek to submit, when you seek to do what is right, There may be moments, and probably more often than not, where you will suffer for it. When you decide to fear God, to serve God, to love the brotherhood, to honor, there may be moments where you will suffer for it. Because why? Where does the suffering come from then? The suffering comes from only one thing. I say, if you're submitting, I'm doing all this, how is that suffering? How is suffering going to happen? It feels like the person I'm submitting to is going to be all happy. No. There's a moment when suffering happens. You know when the suffering happens? When you fear God. And you say this, you are an ungodly authority, there's an unjust authority, right? I will submit under you unless your authority forbids me from doing what God tells me to do. I will submit unless what you tell me to do goes directly against what God tells me to do, in which case I will not submit, in which case I will honorably honor you, respect you, but I will not submit to you. If you do not bow down, I will throw you into the fire. And God's people said, even if God does not answer and save us, we will not bow down and worship you, O king. You see, this is where the the discourse of civil disobedience comes in. When, When the authority that is in play, when mom or dad, when church, when government begins to give authority, give laws, give decrees that goes against what God is telling us to do, we don't, the Bible, Peter's not telling you just submit, be passive, and just go with it. Peter's saying, no, in that case, in that case, you do not follow that. You follow what God tells you. You follow what God calls you to do. You do not do that. If mom and dad calls me to do something as unholy or ungodly, you're not supposed to follow that. Civil disobedience, I mean, you're going to get punished for it for sure, right? But you're not going to follow that because why? Because what you call me to do goes against what my God tells me to do. And because of that, you will suffer. And Peter says what? Endure it. Endure it because the suffering you are going through is commendable before God. You are suffering for doing what is right, for doing what is just, for listening. You're a Christian family in China, right, for example. You get pregnant. They say kill the child because of population control. What do you say? No. We will throw you in jail. We'll put your family in concentration camps if you don't do it. No. My God calls me to honor life. I will not kill him, an innocent child. You live in a country that forbids you to read your Bible. So you smuggle it in. You get caught. You get punished for it. 
Why? Because that country is forbidding you to do something that God tells you to do. Study his word. Day and night. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. You're a Christian, filing taxes, and you want to fudge the numbers a little bit because you don't want to pay the extra amount. Your tax guy tells you, you can do it, don't worry, I got you. You say, I don't want to lie, do everything that is legal to get me to the best place that you can. I cannot lie before my God. I cannot steal what's not mine. You will suffer for choosing to fear God. And Peter says, endure it. Endure it. All right, you guys get that? Seven practical things. Think about how you're going to live through that, okay? But here's my last thing here. Easier said than done, PT, right? The pressure comes along. I got, I got, I got relationships I got to deal with. My livelihood is on the line. My work is on the line, right? My boss is telling me if I don't cheat the numbers, he's going to fire me. And if I get fired, I don't get a job. If I don't have a job, then I was going to provide the gas and the money for the family. All these things are on the line. How dare you? How dare you, man, tell me to do these things to put my life in jeopardy? My answer back to you is how dare you not trust your God, the one who saved your soul from eternal hell. And now you're going to complain about a couple little small things that is at best, at best, going to take away what? I mean, at worst, at worst it can do is kill you. But Paul says what? To me, to die is, to die is gain, to live is Christ. Have you forgotten have you forgotten for what you were called to be? Have you forgotten what you were saved into? Have you forgotten your king, your Lord, who hung upon the cross, who said, it is finished? Have you forgotten what you have been called? This is what Peter says in verse 21. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And when they insulted him, what did he do? He did not retaliate. And when he, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He put his life in the hand of God the Father. And here you are complaining about these chain reaction of events that you don't even know is going to happen yet. It's just part of your mind. And you're making the excuse for why you have to compromise and fear God and not fear God. And serve yourself and serve your own opinions, and serve your own rights. You come up with all these little excuses for why that's the case, and all the while, your Lord, your Savior, who hung upon the cross, did not retaliate, did not hurl back insults, did not give threats, and yet he hung there to do what? My God will judge justly in the end. Justice will come to my king. I do not fear. Whatever wrong has been done to me on the day where I stand before him. This is what Peter says in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You know what that means? Glorify God? They will say this. 
This God is the God of gods because his people will not bend. They did not bend in the midst of all this hostility, in the midst of all this compromise. They refused to bend. And what this God is doing right now, his judge right now, his judging that he's placing upon this world, this moment is a just judgment. They will know that they have done wrong. They will know that they have done wrong before the eyes of God. You can run from the eyes of men for a time being, but you cannot run from the eyes of God. All the prayers of injustice from his people are just building up, the Bible says in Revelation. It's just building up, and one day he will pour all that justice back out. He will pour down upon the world of men and women who have done injustice to this world. That's why we have the ability as sons, as daughters, to face the injustice before us, to endure it, because we know our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, died and came back from the dead. He placed his hand in the hands of the Father. Can you not do the same? You know, when Peter, the guy who wrote this, the dude who denied Jesus three times, by the way, Again, not a perfect guy. But when he began to realize this, who his God is, to this is what I've been called. When he began to preach the gospel and lived it out, and the authorities and the, and, and the government, they said, stop, or we're going to throw you in jail, we're going to whip you. What did he say? I obey God, not you. I fear God, not you. And when they suffered for Jesus, when he was whipped, when he was jailed, what did he do? He came out and he rejoiced. I'll endure it. He rejoiced because you know why? You know why he rejoiced? Because his goal was not to live a comfortable life, but a life like Christ. And as he walked out, punished for injustice, he realized what? My life is like Christ, and therefore I rejoice. See, sometimes in America, guys, in this country, we get so caught up with the comfortableness of life, yes? And so we get, we get kind of nervous about facing injustice. About, about, we get kind of nervous about God's word and finding ways to improvise, loopholes, getting way around it, compromising. Peter suffered and endured because why? Jesus suffered and endured. I pray that sons and daughters of the living God, and if you're just here and you, and you don't know God yet, I pray this upon you. Just look into your heart. You know your selfish bent. You know, you know how you, you think that you are right, that somehow you are the center of the universe. You claim rights that you don't even know where it came from, which you're claiming these rights. There's a bent in us. And until you realize that the only way to solve human depravity, selfishness, and brokenness, the proclivity, you, sometimes we forget the proclivity of the human heart of how selfish we really are. When you realize that upon your heart, you know there's only one way. How can that be fixed? Can that be changed? And the answer is yes, in Jesus Christ, who has come to not only give you eternal life, but to give you a transformed life. Heaven is not a consolation prize for Christians, guys. 
Christ is the prize for Christians. We are restored and brought home to where we were always meant to be. We're just going home. That's why we are exiles. That's why we're sojourners. That's why we stick out like a sore thumb. That's why you're able and you should and you need to live holy in this hostile world. My prayer for you. Do not emulate your culture, but emulate your Christ. Amen? Let's pray.